All right, would y'all pray with me? Father, we need in, um, in our days, we need uh, to be reminded of the hope of you, the eternal purposes that you have set for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Um, we have, our eyes give us many reasons to panic and to fear but your word gives us infinite more command not to fear, to be hopeful, and to groan, to wait patiently, to work hard, to pray like crazy, and to expect that you will keep your word and that you will not forsake your people. And so we take great comfort, Lord, in the hope of the gospel this morning. And we pray now as we look at your word that you would speak hope to us, that we would take up these things that were written for our benefit so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So would you give us hope in your word today? Through your spirit, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 28, and um, let me just say a word of welcome to those uh, Moscow, Mo- Moscowites, Moscowinians, whatever you are. Welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here with us. So um, what we're going to do, Trey read you the context of the verse that we're going to meditate on uh, today. We're actually going to be in Genesis 28, but I kind of wanted you to, to catch the, the sending out of Jacob. Last week, we looked at, um, at Rebecca and Jacob deceiving. Um, I told you last week, deceiving for Isaac's good, deceiving Isaac. And, um, and you, we just read how Esau, because of that, instead of being... Um, being humbled by God's providential work, Esau, as yet unconverted, is plotting murder over a brother. And so Jacob has to run. And so we're going to take up um, and read where Jacob leaves his family, leaves his, uh, the land that he's familiar with and makes his way to a, what is to him a strange, a strange place and how God um, meets with him there. So I'm going to make just a few comments on the way about things that I can't preach about, and then I'll, um, I'll meditate uh, with you on these things. So you're in verse, uh, we'll start in chapter 28, verse 10. It says, when Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, and taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Three times, place, place, place. That's really, really important. Um, and he dreamed. So, so picture this guy, just for a moment. Picture Jacob being sent out because somebody was, trying, was in, intent on killing him, a brother. And he has to run away, and he's headed to some place, from some place, and he goes to this nowhere place. And he lays down, and he puts a stone by his head. And he dreamed, this, this lonely man dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold the angels of God were ascending and descending on it indeed that should that sentence should rightly start with behold what in the world y'all ever seen anything like this when you dream the heavens open there's a a ladder we'll talk about what that looks like but angels of God ascending and descending on it and behold 
even crazier, the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, stood above it. And he said to Jacob, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Uh, there's a, I, I won't have time to get to it in a little bit. So I just pointed out to you and I don't know what it all means. It's just magic and glory. He's, he's laying down. Sleep is always in the scripture, a picture of death. Jesus talks about Lazarus sleeps, he'll rise. So it's, it's a picture of death. So he's lying there as it were, dead. Um, So you're thinking, um, from dust you came to dust you shall return. And so here's this picture of this dead man laying there. And God says, the land on which you lie, the land of your death, I'll give it to you. This is gonna be your place. It's amazing. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and to the south. And in you... And your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. God just Emmanueled him. I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. It's fascinating that he doesn't say, I will lead you wherever you go. It's like, I'm going to follow you. To keep you. It's amazing. I'll keep you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this place. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We ought not think there. Lord, don't even, don't leave me even then. Like accomplish and then stay. That's, he doesn't mean he's going to bail. But he means I have a purpose for you and I'm going I'm to see it through. My purposes will not be frustrated. Then Jacob awoke from sleep and said, surely... The Lord is in this place. And listen to this. I did not know it. What what child among us doesn't know that God is omnipresent, that God is in this place? Like go to a place where you can't find God. You can't go there. But there's something. Jacob is learning something that we on the uh, on the backside of the crucifixion and resurrection and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. um, It's commonplace to us. God is in this place. I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? Again, place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone, just like you or I would, that he put under his head and he set it up on a pillar and poured oil on top of it. That was a joke. I, no, I would never think to do this, but he did it. He called the name of that place Bethel. The house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in, the, uh, in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. So a wise man once said that what God has done in the past 
is a pattern and a promise for what he will do in the future, but he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. I've told you this a hundred times. I'm going to tell you a thousand more because it's essential. What God has done in in the past is a pattern. He always does this type of thing, a pattern and a promise. He will always do this kind of thing, pattern and a promise for what he will do in the future, but he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. When he wants to make a way for you, he doesn't send you to the Red Sea so that he could part it again. He does something else that's awesome, okay? This is an essential truth for Christians to build our lives upon. God has promised concerning the world, and we just read it in our text, that in Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And by blessed, I mean that they will all be baptized and catechized. Okay? They are all, all the nations, to be discipled, baptized, taught to obey all that Christ has commanded. This is what the Great Commission is all about, and it's going to happen and someday. In this way, Eden restored will be what it was intended to be, namely, the heavenly kingdom of God come to all the earth. His name hallowed from all of this dirt. His will done on earth as in heaven, the earth will be Filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. That's a promise. That's a promise. Brothers and sisters, this is the future of this world. But often, our eyes tell us a different story. Amen? Anybody been watching the news lately? Globally, we're witnessing the new outbreak of an old conflict, the old conflict over the same land that God promised to give to the patriarchs. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, text messages and conversations I got in this week. Is this the tribulation? Where is the Antichrist? Is it, is it Biden? Right? Is it Kamala? Who, who's the Antichrist in this picture? And so just talking through eschatology, because we see these things, we go, man, this has got to be the end, Right? We can, um, in our own culture, we can hear the death rattle of our once great civilization. We could talk openly about all of this if it weren't for our big brother tech tyrant overlords who have ears in our pockets and will um, retrain us if they catch us thinking against them. We are watching our leaders with overweening pride and arrogance and greed strangle our economy with rebel hands. Things are looking pretty grim at the moment in the world. And then... Personally, leave the world alone. Anybody else struggling? Am I the only one? We can feel ourselves to be, see if this sounds familiar, alone in the wilderness, forsaken by our fathers, nothing to show for our lives but a rock by our head in the darkness. Anybody been there? I think Jacob's plight feels pretty familiar to most Christians. We can, we can get in these seasons. So please understand that it is the motif of Scripture for our God to wait until our own weakness cripples us and our enemies are closed in on every side before us before he shows his greatest strength and deliverance. It is always coldest and darkest right before the dawn. God loves to do this right here, to wait until it looks like, man, there's no hope for this guy. And then he shows up in a major way. So the first section of our text gives us the setting of the story. And it's meant to give us a a healthy picture of both the dereliction of Jacob and the normalcy of that kind of dereliction 
for the people of God. Remember, he's just had to run from his murderous brother right after he discovered that it was his father's good intention to cut him completely out of the family blessing. That's what Jacob discovers when he's, um, when he's deceiving Isaac. We're told that Jacob left and, and we're given some important places. Beersheba, and he went to Haran, and that he came to this certain place that we find out later is Bethel. These place names are here because Moses wants us to place this story in its redemptive historical context of God's dealing with his covenant people. There's several stories that should come to our mind when we're reading these words. Abraham left um, Ur and he made his way to Haran where he lost his father. And then when he came into the promised land, his second stop was Bethel. And he set up an altar and the worship of God right here. Um, Jacob has, so to speak, lost his father in Beersheba. He stops in Bethel on his way to Haran. He's going almost in the exact opposite direction. And so we're to, we're to remember, just as God was with Abraham, he's going to be with Jacob. It was at Bethel that Abraham had already built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. We've also already read of another son of Abraham that was sent away by his father from Beersheba who in his moment of death and loneliness meets the angel of the Lord in the wilderness, just like Jacob is about to do. And he receives the promised blessing of 12 princes. We're talking about Ishmael, the, uh, the first and lesser Israel. The point is that without the history of redemption and forming our imaginations, we might well look on Jacob's plight, his loneliness, his darkness, his, his sleeping by a rock. And we might just want to weep for him and, uh, and question whether or not God knows what he's doing and promising to be his God. But brothers and sisters, if we knew our Bibles, we would be instead looking right here and looking around expectantly for God to do something marvelous. It's these situations where God always shows for his people. So think for a moment. For the Christian, poverty is always a context for divine provision. Barrenness is always the context for miraculous births. Thirst is the context for God to bring water from the rock. Weakness is the context for God's strength to be made manifest. When God's people fight giants, which they must do, the giants are always too big to be missed. We always beat them, every time. It's amazing. God's few soldiers are just frankly way too many for the enemy that's 10 times more numerous. Go ask Gideon. God says, you're you're too much to go fight these guys that vastly outnumber you. You need to send some people home. It's like, what? It's the way God always does it. Sin is always an opportunity for God's greater display of grace. Death is merely the birthplace of eternal life. Amen, Christian? We should know before having to read it that God's man here with nothing but a stone by his head is about to have heaven descend upon him so that he can take over the world. If we knew, if we had an imagination that was steeped in the Bible, that's what we would be expecting and that's precisely what happens. And it happens, as Paul would say in Romans, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. These are our stories. They're meant to give us encouragement and hope in the hard times because they show how low things can get and how faithful God is to show himself strong through and in those times. So do you know these dark nights of the soul where you got nothing but a rock by your head? If so, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.
Isn't that amazing? We Christians need the constant reminder of what Jacob was about to discover for the first time in his life, that God shows when it gets dark. And he always does. He always does. So God comes to Jacob in a vision. So you've got the setting and then you've got the vision. You've got a promise and then a response. That's kind of how the text is laid out. So God comes to Jacob in a vision. And the vision is, again, bathed in biblical imagery and motif. The text says, behold, there was a ladder, which the Hebrew word there can also be translated as mound or stepped pyramid. Okay, so... um, we might refer to as a tower. With just the Hebrew word and grammar, that's not an unwarranted translation. But when you put it in its context, I think it's the only way that we should understand this. So adding in the context, it becomes obvious that we ought to see it as a, as a step pyramid, and I'll show this to you. For starters, we're told that the top reached to heaven. The word reached, naga, has a special emphasis on the thing being touched. Okay, so this tower is not just a tower trending heavenward. This tower actually gets there. So there's, picture this, a thing, we'll just call it a thing, tower, ladder, mound, it's a thing. I prefer to think of it as a tower. There's a tower set up on the earth and it's reaching heaven. Where have we seen this attempted in the story of Genesis? It's Babel. It's a redoing of the story of Babel. It's the tale of two towers. Somebody should write a book about that or something. There's some key differences between what we might call Bethel's tower and Babel's tower. Bethel's tower was set up by God and not man, and therefore it actually achieves the end for which it was made. Remember that Babel, man was building heavenward. Let us make our tower, and God went down to see what they were doing. This is a tower that God has set up, and therefore it actually achieves the end for which it was made, It's been quipped that the Tower of Babel was a Pelagian tower, a tower built by man. But the Tower of Bethel was a Calvinist tower built by the sovereign grace of God himself. It's important that on the tower, there was commerce between heaven and earth. Listen to this. Angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And notice the order. Angels were not descending and ascending, which is what all of us would think. If heaven is open and the angels are going to come, like angels would be descending and then ascending. That's not the way it reads. That is, they're going up first and down second, which is not what we would expect unless we really knew our Bibles extremely well. Okay, so the scriptures teach us that the Tower of Babel was the division of the nations, all of which God would one day bless and reconcile in his son, Jesus. When they were divided, they were subjected to principalities and powers that governed them, but that the Lord himself chose Israel. So, so listen to, this is Deuteronomy 32.8. You should write that in your Bible if you write in your Bible. Deuteronomy 32.8, listen. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. That's this angelic order. The sons of God, we see them uh, throughout the Old Testament and they're always angelic beings. He fixed the nations according to the number of the sons of God and he put those nations under those sons of God. But the text says, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what's being pictured here on Jacob's tower is the commerce between heaven and earth. 
between the God of heaven and the angelic rulers of the nations as they track up and down the Tower of Babel. And now we're getting this picture that God is starting to set up his heritage, his heritage, and he's doing it with Jacob. This association with Babel is further underscored by the promise that God makes to Jacob, and it is a staggering promise. If, if, if we can listen to it as if for the first time, put all of your systematic theology aside and just listen to what God promises this man. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now that's a problem. That's a problem. Our God just made a mistake, didn't he? Didn't he? He should have said, I am the God of Abraham and your father, Isaac. Not what he says. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Okay? Surely he meant to say it the other way. No. When Isaac went rogue, there's something going on here. When Isaac went rogue and tried to cut Jacob completely out of the covenant, I believe something really important happened. This text seems to suggest that not only did Jacob replace Esau, but he also replaced Isaac. Jacob is called the son of Abraham, and it's through this son's line that God will bless the nations. So after identifying himself, and the Lord reveals his intimate knowledge of Jacob's great suffering. So, so he says, I'm, I'm the God of, I'm the God of uh, your father Abraham and Isaac. It's like God knows what's going on with Jacob, that his daddy just tried to cut him out of everything. Would that not shatter your soul to know that your father's intention was to so bless your brother as to leave you nothing in the family line. It's, it, it, would, it would shatter your soul. And God knows this about Jacob. So he identifies himself, and then he promises to give Jacob, quote, the land on which you lie. And he promises as well to give it to his offspring after him. This is a promise that is so far off that Jacob does not even get the chance to die in this land. He dies in Egypt. But though it is a faraway promise, it is a promise that must and shall be realized. Such, brothers and sisters, is the promise that we have in Christ. Do you feel like the promises, all the promises that we have in Christ, are, are going to descend upon us tomorrow? Anybody wait for that? It would be awesome. But this country, it looks like it's going to be some time away. This country, this state, this county, all of it will be loyal to Christ in every aspect of its existence from, e uh, from economics to art, from politics to playgrounds. Top to bottom, left to right, cradle to grave. This place will acknowledge and be blessed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ one day. It may be a thousand years from now. It may be next spring. But rest assured, it's coming as sure as Jesus is Lord. Christ shall have the prize for which he died. And that prize is the inheritance of nations. Listen to me. It is not optional. It's not a maybe. It's a certainty. He will have the prize for which he died. This and no other thing is what God is promising Jacob. So not only that, but Jacob has promised something about his seed. Quote, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Adam was made from dust and to dust he shall return. But the covenant community will be like the dust concerning their numbers. They shall spread west and east, north and south. And in Jacob's offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's, there's two things I want you to think about. The first is that this is almost exactly what Abraham was promised in Genesis 13 in the exact same place. 
Right after, uh, so he, he, he came from Haran, he went to Shechem, he went to, uh, he went to Bethel, set up an altar, called upon the name of the Lord. Then he goes down into Egypt where Sarah is taken. He goes out of Egypt to Bethel and it's that, it's that place where Lot separates from him. So Abraham experiences loneliness right here in Bethel. And this is where God comes to, to Abraham and he says, I want you to stand up and look as far north as you can look. I want you to look as far south as you can look. So both patriarchs in the very middle of the promised land, both patriarchs were, uh, were invited by God to get out their compasses. And he pointed in every direction and he said, I will give that to you. It's amazing. It's amazing. But that's only part of the glory. The second part is that the blessings and growth will not stop at the borders of the promised land. We get so hung up on the land, especially when people are dying right now over it. But every time the land is mentioned, there is another blessing given that is far too large for the land of Israel. The land of Israel cannot contain what God is about to say to Jacob. And it's a promise. In you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All of them. All of them. So please... Don't let your unbelief cloud the simple clarity of this text. We, we love to play games with God's word and to pretend like, well, he can't really mean all the families of the earth. I mean, that can't be, that can't be the case. Well, let the text stand. All the families of the earth does not and cannot mean some families of the earth or many families of the earth. Do you know what it has to mean? It has to mean all, all the families of the earth. It can't mean a tinykin's remnant from all the families on the earth. What God is promising to Jacob is that Jacob's line will include all the families of the earth and then they will be blessed in Jacob's line. This is only accomplished through Christ, but it is accomplished through him. We're not talking about, I'll give you two terms. We're not talking about universalism. What we are talking about is majorityism. So let me borrow and rework an illustration. So yesterday, um, many of us went to Carly's wedding and it was glorious, right? The preaching was on point. The, the dancing was fantastic. Everything, everything, top to bottom was really, really fun. And I can say truthfully, I can say everybody in our church was there. Like all these people were there. People came from, you know, the, the, the outermost reaches of the earth, all the way in Moscow, Idaho. They came from there. And, um, and there were just tons of people and, and everybody in our church was there. Now, that's no insult to the, the, the pockets of people in our church that, could, that couldn't be there or that were holding out because they didn't trust that Will Griffith kid. That could have been the case. But the point is, if I say everybody in our church was there and there was like maybe a family or two that, that didn't make it, that's not an insult to them. They don't get to complain and say, what, are we not part of the church? You said everybody. No, it's just, you know, the, the, the vast majority of our entire church was there. But the reverse is also true. If I were to say, I'm telling you about the wedding and I say, man, everybody in the church was there and it was just me and Lexi on the dance floor and nobody else came. Now, all of a sudden, I've been embellishing the truth. Do you see that? If it's a tiny remnant of our people and I say, everybody, I have stretched the truth. But if it's the vast majority of everybody, and I say everybody, then if some people are not included, I haven't, um, I haven't spoken untruly. So when the scriptures say things like, God so loved the world that he gave his son, 
when he promised that in Christ all the nations of the earth would be blessed, we need to avoid these two errors. We need to avoid thinking of universalism. Well, he said all, and that means everybody, there's no, nobody, nobody's going to fail to enter the kingdom. We need, to, we need to stop short of universalism, but we also need to stop thinking in terms of remnantism. If, if, if uh, right, we take Jesus's words, um, um, narrow, is the, uh, narrow is the gate and, and few there are who find it. And so we have this idea that's just a narrow slip of people that are gonna be saved. And we forget that in the book of Revelation, there's a mixed multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group that cannot be numbered just like this verse says. Stars of the heaven, dust of the earth, count them. If you can, then you'll be able to count the people that will be blessed eternally in Christ. Either of these two options, thinking about universalism or remnantism, both of those are a denial of the gospel promises that we find in, in, uh, in these verses and in the New Testament. God is not speaking as though there will never be those who deny Christ. Of course there will be. There is damnation outside of Christ. There is salvation inside of Christ. And there's no third option. This is the way it is. Some will remain outside of Christ. He's not saying that Christ came to make his blessings flow to we few, we happy, we band of Christian brothers. Like, the, like there's you know, just a few of us. No. God is promising that at the end of all things, when the kingdom comes into its full ripeness, The concept of remnant will only apply to non-believers. By comparison, it will be a precious few. That's what I believe the the scriptures teach. So we we can say all will come. A numberless multitude like the stars of the heavens, like the dust of the earth. For numbers will come, uh, many will come quietly through the persuasion of the spirit by the gospel. There will still be a tiny remnant that will come kicking and screaming, rejecting of the gospel But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God also promised to Jacob, I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. That would be amazing, right? Can you imagine a more comforting promise if God were to say to you, listen, I'll never leave you. I'll keep you wherever you go. You are mine to watch over, to keep into guard. You could not imagine a more comforting thing for God to say to his people. And we get to rejoice because he said the same thing in Christ to you and to me. All authority is mine, says our risen Christ. Authority at the top and at the bottom of Jacob's tower, in the heavens and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, he has sworn he will not change his mind. He is with you. He is your keeper. Your shade on your left hand and on your right, he will never leave you. He will fulfill his promises for you. Period, end of sentence, repeat the line to quote our president. He will not leave you, never, no, never. He will fulfill his purposes for you. So how should you respond? Well, suffice it to say that Jacob does something that none of us would think of doing. Listen, so early in the morning, he took the stone that he had set by his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on it and called the name of the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And then he makes a vow. 
Okay, the anointing of the stone makes little sense to us moderns, but to Jacob, it was the most natural thing in the world to do. So we are told at the beginning of the story that at sundown, he put the stone, our text renders it under his head, and so we kind of always think about a pillow. I doubt that's what the text means. It, it, it can mean under, it can mean at. We should probably be thinking more in terms of a windbreak, a shelter that he's kind of huddled down beside. And so he puts it at his head. Um, and then we're told of the ascending and descending angelic host, but there's an ambiguity again in the text, whether it should say they were ascending and descending on him or on it. Meaning it could mean the tower, it could mean Jacob, it could mean the stone that they're coming down to. I think they are descending upon the stone, which is a symbolic representative representation of Jacob himself. It's not my idea. I'm giving you the better ideas of better men. This stone is representative of Jacob himself. And so we need to see this tower as a road of commerce between heaven and earth. The heaven and the stone were the end game destinations. The stone in this vision is symbolic for Jacob. He is the stone that heaven was descending to and through. He was descending, heaven was descending to that stone and through that stone to the nations, meaning to Jacob and through Jacob to all the earth. Therefore, he set up that stone as a pillar, anointed it with oil and renamed the place Bethel. Think of what this means. If this stone symbolizes Jacob and it does, then we could begin to see this anointed stone as a stone that was first a rejected stone, a despised stone, a murdered stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Indeed, the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. And if you think I'm playing too loose with the text, just understand that, that Jesus gave me the idea in John chapter one, okay? He brings up these verses, Angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he says. It sounds cool, but what does it all mean and why should we care? Well, these things were written for our instruction and our encouragement that we might have hope. When life deals out our low seasons, and life is really good at dealing out low seasons, amen? Those seasons where we feel rejected by our fathers and hated by our brothers, when we are lonely and languishing, we are to remember these very things. That's when God shows up and he shows up to help us remember. We are to remember that God is always with us, that he will never leave us. We are to remember that he will accomplish all he has purposed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Christ, and to all of those who by faith are united to Christ as his people. We are the offspring that outnumbers heaven, the, the, the stars and the dust. We are to hold fast remembering that the strength God gives us in our lowest times is the strength of his presence and the strength of his old promises. My, uh, the pastor I grew up uh, under, I listened to a sermon that he preached recently, and he's, he's stepping away, and, um, and he kept uh, reminding them, and it was just such a glorious thing. He called them the old promises of God. Do you know what you need to be strengthened? You need the old promises of God. What better place to remember those old promises than at this table? Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of God. He is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone of a new and better Bethel. A new and better house of God, which is being built up with living stones, believers from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
The promise might seem far away for us as it was for Jacob, but the body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. He has risen, he has ascended, he is reigning, and he is, recon- he is the reconciling king who promises to return. Once all the enemies have become a footstool for his feet. And at, at his return, he will put that one last remaining enemy down. He doesn't return to slaughter a whole bunch of enemies like so many people think. He is right now ruling until all of his enemies become a footstool for his feet. And at the end, he will return to deal with the last enemy. Bible scholars, what is the last enemy that he destroys at his death? The Muslims, right? No. The secularists, right? No. Who's the last enemy? It's death itself. He will put that one last remaining enemy down. We eat this bread. We drink the cup, declaring his death and announcing his sure return. He will keep his word to us. Brothers and sisters, he will keep his word to us. He'll keep it to us. He'll keep it to me. He'll keep it to you. Your sins are forgiven and your future is bright. So won't you come to the table smiling even in these dark days? Won't you come and enjoy fellowship and participation in the body of Christ The only thing keeping anyone from this table is stubborn unbelief. So knock it off. Repent if you must and come if you will. The grace, as always, is totally free. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. If you're a visitor with us, you don't have to be a member here. You just have to be a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a baptized Christian. Um, We would love for you to celebrate with us. So we're going to sing, lay out the elements. Uh, We're going to sing first. And then in a few moments, you'll come down the outside aisles, take the elements, go sit back down, and we'll eat them and drink them together. Let me pray for us, and we'll celebrate. Father God, we thank you that you are, um, you are our hope in the darkness. You come to us with your presence and with your promises when we are most desperate for both. God, there's not a man, a woman, or child in this room that does not desperately need your presence right now, that does not desperately need your promises right now. We need it more. We need you and we need your word more than we need our next breath. And so we ask you to come as we come to the table to participate in Christ together. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and minister to us the the good and the blessing that you intended for us to have through Christ. God, we trust you for these things and we look to Christ, his broken body, his shed blood. We look in remembrance and we celebrate these things. Thank you, in Christ's name, amen.